Hello, this is Andrew. And this is Caleb, and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. Now, this episode is going to be a little different than something we may have done in the past, and you might be thinking, how is it different? Well, this time we're going to be covering the Northwest Indian War, and the episode is not going to be Iroquois-centric, although they're going to be involved in the diplomacy and on the peripherals, but when the main climax happened, we're going to find them kind of hiding off to the side, trying not to get involved. So Andrew and I almost skipped this whole war here, but it kind of set up where we wanted to go with the episode coming out in two weeks. So we decided to put this one together. Some of our fans, Andrew, will really enjoy this because I had, a, I think, three different people from Ohio write us in this week and say how much they love the Ohio Indian history and all the, they said that, you know, they read about it all the times and here we go. We're going to talk about it. The Northwest Indian War, which was also known for a long time as Little Turtles War. So when we left off last time, we had the Treaty of Paris in 1783 that was signed after the American Revolution was officially over. The British ended up abandoning all of the native allies, and they ceded all the land up to the Mississippi River to the United States. And the Americans are looking at themselves thinking, okay, cool, we've just doubled the size of our nation, and it's ours now because we won the war. Back in the day, the term right of conquest was a legal term in their mind. To the Native Americans living within the territory where no white people were to be found, they thought quite differently of this rule. And now realizing that a lot of people are starting to encroach more and more on their lands into the Ohio Territory, a lot of these nations want war but others are looking for peace. So in 1783, Joseph Brandt traveled to Sandusky, Ohio for a massive conference. On September 7th, he spoke to a pan-Indian council of Wyandons, Delaware, Shawnees, Cherokees, Ojibwas, Ottawas, and Mingos. And Simon Gertie was also there as interpreter. Can you imagine how that must have felt with Joseph Brandt and Simon Gertie together in the same place? I wonder if Simon Gertie interpreted for every single different nation there. He may have. In the end, the Iroquois and the 29 other Indian nations agreed that we're going to hold the Americans to the 1768 treaty at Fort Stanwix. And we're going to hold that that line is the border and that no European settlers are allowed to go beyond it. They also made a pact together that no Indian nation could sell or cede any of their land without a universal vote from all the nations in this newly formed Western Confederacy. And also during the same conference is when Brandt ends up speaking to the British administrator named Haldimand about a land track in Canada for the loyalist Iroquois people that were now dispossessed. This land would be located in the Grand River Valley, which, if you know anything about southern Ontario, it's still there. So we're going to talk more about that in the future. So this newly formed Western Indian Confederacy decided to send messages to the United States Congress asking for representatives to come to them to try and work out some kind of peace deal. And the letter promptly went from their inbox to their paper shredder. With a lot of these native tribes getting the cold shoulder, they felt that they had to go to war to try and save their way of life. And British agents in the Ohio region gave and sold weapons to the natives and encouraged them to attack American settlers. And war parties are periodically attacking throughout the 1780s, which just ended up causing more and more bloodshed and mistrust on both sides between whites and Indians. In the fall of 1786, a General Benjamin Logan led a force of Kentucky militia against the Shawnee villages along the Mad River. 
Most of the Shawnee warriors were off busy raiding in Kentucky at the time, so the villages were basically undefended. They were just filled with old men, women, and children, and Logan burned the village, he burned the farms, the orchards, and then he killed and captured as many natives as he could catch, including a prominent chief named Maluntha. Joseph Brandt was there at the time, and he just narrowly escaped as Logan came through. As the prisoners were being marched away, one of Logan's men murdered Chief Malungtha. The murder really kind of pissed off the Shawnee. Uh, it's bad enough they've just been uh, burned out and everything, but it was kind of uh, bad taste to capture a prisoner and then murder him on the way back. Normally, if you're going to capture somebody, there's a reason for it. Logan claimed he had nothing to do with it, and he chastised his men. But one way or another, the chief was dead. And so attacks from the Shawnee were going to really ramp up for the rest of the late 1780s. Over the following years, Andrew, Native American raids in the Ohio River Valley would take the lives of over 1,500 settlers. That's quite a number. That sounds bad, but we don't even know the number of how many were killed of Native Americans. I bet it was just as much, if not much more. And this would just keep going on back and forth for many years. On July 13, 1787, the United States formally annexed the Ohio Territory and appointed as its governor a Mr. Arthur St. Clair. Let's talk about some of the big movers and shakers of the story, Andrew. You mentioned Arthur St. Clair, who we've mentioned in some past episodes. He was the commander at Fort Ticonderoga in the American Revolution, and he's just recently been appointed the governor of the new Northwest Territories of the United States. I bet he's going to do a great job. <laughs> well, let's, let's find out. But there's another character we need to introduce, and that's Little Turtle. You know, Little Turtle's War? This is the guy. And... Much like Pontiac's Rebellion, Little Turtle's War, it wasn't really his. He wasn't really like the headmaster mind that was controlling everything. As cool as that sounds, he was, yes, a prominent Miami chief, but let's just not say it wasn't his war. Yeah, remember, this is a confederation of dozens of different Indian nations, and he's just representing one of them. And normally these names that get associated with the wars, Andrew, I have a feeling it was most likely done that way because they would pick a name that was easy to remember. Uh, if you were some family out in Boston, they couldn't just keep writing down all these different Native American names. So they'd just be like, Little Turtle. Okay, that's easy to remember. Let's say uh, this he's the one in charge of this because it's too confusing to try to name all these other names. But Little Turtle, he earned his fame fighting go figure, in the American Revolution, and in particular for killing a Frenchman named Le Bon. And you might ask, who is Le bon? Was he the bomb? He's kind of, it's kind of a funny story with this guy, Andrew. I, I tried to do as much research on him, but the whole thing sounded really shady. But anyway, this random French guy, Le bon, was in the Ohio Territory, and he showed up there with like 30 men. Nobody really knew what he was doing there, and he's marching with this French flag as he comes into Detroit. And everybody that sees him come in just assumes he knows what he's doing, so nobody's, like, attacking him or anything. And he claimed that he was sent from General Washington, and this is now property of the United States, and they were French allies of the Americans. So did Washington really send him? Well, that's, that's kind of the funny thing. Uh, kind of, maybe? 
Uh, Washington never really officially admitted to sending this guy. So it might have been one of these things where this guy shows up and he says, hey, I'll go to take Detroit. And Washington said, oh, okay. And then he went and did it. Uh, but it didn't have a very good outcome for him because once the Miami realized that this random French guy didn't have any reinforcements coming and he didn't have the backing of the entire United States Army, they decided to kick him out. So Laban was told that the Miami were coming to kill him, so he and his men ran. And as they were marching along the Eel River, the little turtle caught up with them, and a long standoff took place. How long? Well, that also depends who you ask. It was a long time. Some people say it lasted for days. Other people say that it lasted up to a month. What? Yeah, they dug in deep by the river and put their rifles and muskets out, and they just sat there. Eventually, though, Little Turtle and the Miami emerged as the victors. Little Turtle, along with his counterpart, a war chief named Blue Jacket from the Shawnee, would become the two most prominent war chiefs in the Northwest Indian War. Not much is known about Blue Jacket's early life. He was a Shawnee, and we know that he did participate in Lord Dunmore's war, but he fought on the side of the British against the other Native Americans. An American Quaker was quoted as calling him a brave, masculine figure of a man. Did you, did you have to read it like that, Andrew? I had to read it like that. He also had a village that was burned by Benjamin Logan in 1786. In 1788, Andrew Blue Jacket, he ends up getting accused of some crime. Some people say he was trying to steal a horse. Uh, long short of it is he gets tied up and basically kidnapped by some Kentuckians. And he didn't really speak English, so he starts yelling out Daniel Boone's name. And, and you know, he's tr basically trying to tell him, I'm a friend of Daniel Boone's. And they're all laughing like, yeah, sure. How would this random Indian be friends with the great Daniel Boone? So they drag him to Daniel Boone's house drag him up. He's laying on the ground. They got their ropes around his ankles. They drag him right through the door and Boone looks down and sees his friend Blue Jacket, hogtied laying on his floor. But Boone, he was stuck in a little bit of a pickle because he couldn't really uh, say this is my bestest buddy, you know the one that everybody here is kind of mad at. So he says, let's throw him in the closet. Uh, and we'll figure out what to do with him later. So they say, okay, that's a good idea. And as they put him in the closet, Daniel Boone uh, kind of subtly drops a pocket knife from his pocket right in front of Blue Jacket before closing the door, gives him a wink, and then says, come on, guys, let's go get some beers on me. And they walk over to the saloon. And when they come back out from the saloon, don't you know what? Somehow that rascal Blue Jacket, he must have been hiding a pocket knife or something because he cut himself out and escaped. And despite the war between the Northwestern Indian nations and the Americans, Daniel Boone and Blue Jacket would stay close friends throughout the whole war and the rest of their lives. One little myth that kind of percolates on the internet these days claims that Blue Jacket was actually a man named Marmaduke Van Schweringen. That doesn't sound very Indian. That's yeah, because it's not. They claimed that he was actually some kind of... Uh, Scandinavian guy that was captured by Native Americans and rose to prominence. Fortunately, through the modern miracle of DNA testing, they tested descendants of Blue Jacket, and they tested people of this uh, supposed Marmaduke Van Schweringen. They're not related. 
Blue Jacket was not white. So some people speculated he was basically another version of Simon Gertie that had been fully adopted and, you know, worked his way up to being a prominent but citizen. But he wasn't. <laughs> now, Andrew, we've been talking about the Miami and the Shawnee, Blue Jacket and Little Turtle, and uh, St. Clair, the new governor of the territory. But where are the Iroquois? Where are the Six Nations in all of this? You would think that after the Revolutionary War were not only their enemies, but their allies like the Oneida kind of got the short end of the stick after the war, you would think that they would be gung-ho to join this new super confederacy that's forming with all these other nations. And they were some of the principal people initially in the diplomacy, but the more and more it gets closer to war, the Iroquois really start to take their hands back from it. Because think of it this way, what have the Iroquois been dealing with for the last decade. They are still recovering from a near knockout punch. Many of the warriors have been killed. The Seneca and Cayuga had all their towns burned. The Mohawks have been driven out of eastern New York. But, you know, they're still sending ambassadors and stuff. But if war breaks out, they're going to be the first ones to feel it. That's right, because they're the furthest nations to the east. So any war that breaks out, if they are associated with this new confederacy, all of a sudden there's going to be another Sullivan's Expedition type of thing marching through, and they're already trying to recover. So a lot of the clan mothers and uh, the other leadership of the Iroquois are looking at this and they're saying, yes, it, you know, war might be justified, but we just can't risk doing it or we might ha not have a nation left. And we'll get into this more in our next episode as well. But at the same time, George Washington is courting the Six Nations like a 16-year-old trying to ask an 18-year-old out to prom to try and get them to stay out of this war. So this is where Joseph Brandt starts to do a 180. And he starts to say to the people, you know, peace with the United States would probably be the safer option. When Joseph Brandt says that, the Mohawks say that. And when the Mohawk say that, the other groups of the Iroquois kind of fall into line and agree with them. Although... There are a number of Seneca Mingo that are going to get involved in these battles to come. So let's get involved in some battles, Caleb. Sound good? Sounds good. Okay. 1783, the American Revolution officially ended. The following year in 1784, how many Americans do you think were left in the United States Army? Uh, 20,000. Uh, a little less than that. How much is a little less? Um, 55 artillerymen at West Point and 25 more at Fort Pitt on the entire continent. Think of it this way. When the Americans have the war finished, they think, why do we need a standing army anymore? The British are the ones that hold standing armies during peacetime. We're trying to get away with that. Nowadays, America has a huge, massive military, which eats up a huge chunk of our budget every year. But it was a totally different mindset back in the 1780s, 1790s. Why would we do it? It's really expensive. We don't need them. And if there ever was a problem, we'd just call it the militia to deal with uh, any local incursions. But what they didn't count on was illegal immigration. Not by other people, but by them themselves. Because right after the war was over, thousands, and I mean thousands, I don't mean like one or two people are sneaking across the Ohio River. Thousands of people begin to cross the Ohio River and squat onto indigenous lands. Washington's government says, okay, Nobody is allowed to settle the Ohio country right now. Right now being the key word. The U.S. government most definitely wanted people to move in. But first they want to survey it 
and get the tribes pacified and buy the land out from underneath them and thereby avoiding any expensive armed conflicts. Why the U.S. government thought that the people would just willingly give up their land for more money and then have to relocate even further west was apparently lost on the administration. But it didn't matter because there are just so many people coming now. There's no wall and there's no American soldiers to stop them at the river to prevent them from crossing. Washington is really worried about this coming Indian War. It's the last thing he needs right now. The country is broke. It's just a newly formed government. They're just trying to get on their feet. Congress appointed Josiah Harmar to lead a force into the Ohio country. Now on paper at first, Josiah Harmar sounds like a very nice guy. He attended a Quaker school as a child. So he must have turned out okay, right, Caleb? Yeah, we see Quakers. They're kind of pacifists. They've always been uh, kind of a friend to the Indians in the past. Well, unfortunately, his Quaker upbringing did him absolutely no good because he didn't believe a single thing about the Quaker religion. Now, it's assumed that Harmar was given command because of political connections. No, that's never happened, Andrew. You see, he needed a job because he was vastly in debt. He had spent a lot of time in Europe and had really racked up some luxurious living expenses. So now that he's in charge, he decides to build a fort on the Ohio border, at which today we call Steubenville. The point of the fort was to be a base for the land surveyors to go out and explore and scout out new territory, but it was also there to deter people from crossing the border illegally. Now you may ask Caleb, well, did it work? Um, Andrew, did that work? Not at all. Not even in the slightest. Because once you've got a fort with soldiers there, people start flocking there to sell things and trade and use it as a launching off point to go further into the Ohio country. Which is why in the past episodes we mentioned, a lot of the Iroquois were adamant that you can build a trading post but not a fort because they realized as soon as a fort is built, pretty soon it becomes a city. And once it's a city, then people start farming all around it, and it you know, it just becomes an encroachment. And when we say pretty soon, we're talking like in a matter of weeks or months. It really is amazing. These towns would just pop up. Harmar assembled a force of about 320 regular soldiers and 1,100 militiamen from mainly Pennsylvania and Kentucky. These guys got to be the best of the best, right, Caleb? We got a word for them in the gaming community today, Andrew. They were noobs. They were total noobs. I don't even know how it's possible, but a lot of these guys didn't even know how to load and fire a freaking musket. I mean, seriously? Some people even showed up without a gun. How do you grow up in western Kentucky and not know how to load a musket? Another issue was Harmar's idea of how to run a military campaign. You see, Harmar was a huge fan of Count Stuben, and he was with him at Valley Forge, and he tried to replicate Stuben's German tenacity for drilling and repetition and strict discipline. And those tactics are all well and good and they needed to know them to fight, you know, the British army. But that does you absolutely no good when you're fighting a guerrilla warfare against people defending their home soil. But it didn't matter to Harmar because he thought that his tactics were vastly superior to the savages of the region. But in fact, he's soon going to find out that Little Turtle and Blue Jacket have much better tactics. And there was another issue that Harmar had. Mainly, he liked to kick a few cold ones back a little too much. Henry Knox wrote him a letter while Harmar's out on campaign and says to abstain from any form of drinking, saying, quote, you are too 
apt to indulge yourself in the access of a convivial glass. Uh, do you want me to translate that, Andrew? Yeah. It means you get drunk too quickly and too easily. Don't do it. Harmar decided to attack Kekianga, which is modern-day Fort Wayne, Indiana. He said he's going to attack the Miami, he's going to attack the Shawnee, he's going to attack the Delaware, and anybody else we come across. Now, Andrew, as Harmar is marching through Ohio, the native peoples begin to flee their village. And they're all able to escape because a nice gentleman showed up ahead of time to warn them of his approach, a man named Simon Gertie. Hey, I know that name. See our last episode. The Americans burned several villages, but the treaty that these native nations have signed together to all fight together and stand together did not get shaken, even though these towns were destroyed. And on October 20th, the American Indians, led by Little Turtle, attacked a detachment from Harmar's army, led by Colonel John Hardin. Hardin's force consisted of several hundred militiamen and a few regular soldiers. Hardin led his men into an ambush, though, and most of his untrained new militiamen fled the battle without even firing a shot, probably because they didn't know how to pull the trigger on the musket. The regular soldiers put up a brief resistance, but the natives promptly killed them, and there was only a few left, and then they fled too. And by few, we mean eight. And these eight people didn't stop running until they crossed the Ohio River into Kentucky. Harmar sent out another detachment after Little Turtle two days later, and the same thing happened. The Indians are able to turn around, inflict huge casualties on the American settler militias. The Shawnee and the Miami began calling this battle the Battle of the Pumpkin Fields. And that wasn't because the battle actually took place in a pumpkin field, Caleb. It was because all of the American bodies laying out in the open field, after they scalped them, the steam began rising off their scalp skulls, and there were so many of them, they said it kind of looks like a pumpkin patch during a crisp fall morning. Who was that other guy that we talked about a few episodes back, and his name was basically the same description there here. It was Zeisberger. Yeah, steam over the pumpkin patch. Yes. So (laughs) a little different meaning in this context. Once this happened, Harmar immediately retreats to the safety of Fort Washington. He'd lost 183 men, and the battle became known as Harmar's defeat. Harmar comes back to Fort Washington in November of 1790, and he promptly sends a letter to Secretary Knox that he's won a great victory against the Ohioans. But then other letters from his militiamen begin trickling in, and newspapers begin publishing that actually it was a horrible defeat, almost everybody was killed, and Harmar was drunk and a coward and totally incompetent. The following year, the new governor of the Northwest Territories, Arthur St. Clair, is going to raise his own army. No more waiting for D.C. to send him some general. He's going to handle this himself. Heck, he was a great general in the American Revolution, so he'll do it himself, and he is going to take care of those pesky Miamis and Shawnee and everybody else that helps them. Remember, this is the same Arthur St. Clair who got in a lot of hot water in the American Revolution. Yeah, didn't he give up Fort Ticonderoga without a fight? The British are able to take Mount Defiance, and then he sees that they're there, and he just turn tails and runs. And there was actually an indictment about him at the time, but it ends up being uh, swept under the rug and forgiven. So now St. Clair, he's going to have a pretty large army. He's going to raise over 800 infantry. And on top of that, he's going to include Kentucky militia, and he'll also have some cavalry with him. So he's going to wind up with an army of over 1,400 men. 
Now, when his campaign starts, St. Clair ends up being sick as a dog. I don't know if it was dysentery or influenza, but he ends up leaving Cincinnati in 1791 with the sickness. And he is going to be moving so slow, Andrew, and it's just so comical to see. You picture these native warriors that just, they don't even need horses because they're so fast they can just run marathons. And meanwhile, you've got these people bogged down by way too much supplies. The large portion of his men were volunteer militia, which as we see in the past, they're not very reliable. It's getting cold outside and his militia are just saying, Every mile or so, one saying, screw this, I'm going home. And then he just disappear in the woods. So after a few days, he started to notice hundreds of his men missing. He didn't start marching until September. And the winter came early that year. Everyone is out there, Andrew. It's starting to snow. It's starting to get frost on the ground. They're waking up freezing cold because nobody has brought warm clothing equipped for the winter. I think that if I was ever to launch a military campaign... And I was trying to bank on whether winter would arrive early or not. I think I should always bank on the fact that winter is going to arrive early. And on top of all these problems, Andrew, you'll never expect what also is bothering him. Supply troubles. Oh, the, 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 the chronic supply troubles. I don't know if we've ever seen a campaign in the history of North America so far that didn't have them. But by the time the army reached the Wabash River, his men are sick, tired, scared, cold, and they want to go home. Well, at least there's not a band of a large confederacy of allied Native American tribes about to pounce on them. <laughs> Angry Native American tribes. On the morning of November 4th, Little Turtle and his warriors attack. The militiamen immediately ran for their lives screaming. Was it something like, oh, we're all going to die, we're all going <laughs> to die? Something like that. The Indians charged at the main column, but St. Clair was able to hold the line with a musket volley and fixed bayonets. St. Clair led a bayonet charge, and he had two horses shot out from under him. His cannons began firing and proved to be completely worthless. Why so? Well, because Indians don't stand in huge columns in the middle of fields and let themselves get hit by cannonballs. You'd think they would have learned cannonballs are good for smashing walls and hitting columns and not good for much else. So they're dragging these cannons, and these cannons were made to... Uh, to like lob over into forts and things like that. So you couldn't even shoot them straight. You had to lob them up. So they're literally shooting up and over trees and uh, not doing anything. Meanwhile, the Indian warriors start taking their nice rifles and muskets and picking off the artillerymen one by one. General Richard Butler, who was an associate general, we've mentioned him in the past. He was one of several butlers that were high-ranking military officers in the American Revolution. He's here on this campaign, and he gets shot twice and dragged back to his tent wounded. The battle, Andrew, went from bad to worse. And for over three hours, the Americans fought for their lives. And it got so bad that the women and the young children and the camp followers ended up grabbing muskets and running up to join the line to help it so that it wouldn't collapse. St. Clair realized that the fight was lost and he ordered a full retreat and they would abandon everything and everyone. He and the rest of the unwounded men retreated for Fort Jefferson. Everyone that was left behind, Andrew, was scalped, tortured, killed, and that included men, women, and children. The warriors of the Western Confederacy began to take the corpses of the soldiers and they began grabbing dirt and began shoving it in the dead men's mouths. 
asking them if they wanted any more land. Now, while all this is happening, Simon Gurdy is fighting with the Indians against the Americans. And he's walking by this tent. And then he sees a guy sitting there in a bloodstained shirt holding two silver pistols. And he takes it up and begins to aim it at Simon Gurdy. And it was General Richard Butler. And he has it cocked, aiming right dead straight at Gertie's chest. And he pulls the trigger and nothing happens. The pin misfires. So then Butler's like, oh crap, oh crap, oh crap. And he reaches up and pulls his other gun up to aim it at Gertie. And a Shawnee guy comes over and fires a musket ball into him, killing him. Gertie comes over, takes the two pistols, puts them into his belt and uses them for the rest of his life. Butler is then scalped, and Gertie said to the Shawnee guy that took it, why don't you send that to Canada to Joseph Brandt as a present from me? Pretty much saying, look what you missed out on, you coward. Butler's death here, Andrew, would be only one of four American generals from the American Revolution that are going to die in the Northwest Indian War. That's a lot. It's more than were killed or captured in the American Revolution. If President Washington taps you on the shoulder and invites you to fight in this war, probably best stay out of it. Out of the 1,400-man army, 918 are killed, 276 wounded, and that sounds like a lot of men, considering there's 1,400 men, Andrew. What is, what's, this, what's the casualty uh, percentage on that? 86% which is the highest in any battle in the history of American warfare to this day. That sounds high, Andrew, but it sounds even worse if you think of it this way, because that was nearly half of the entire standing army for the United States government, either dead or wounded. When Arthur St. Clair sends a letter talking about the defeat to the Secretary of War, Henry Knox, and President Washington, let's just say Washington was not happy. When he read the letter he immediately demanded St. Clair's resignation. To which I ask, resign from what? He has no army anymore. I wonder, did he lose the the governorship too of the Northwest Territories after this? Yeah. The United States government was in a state of shock. Two years in a row, two campaigns have been completely obliterated by the Northwest Indians. The Western Confederacy tries to get a peace conference together. They think that this is their best opportunity to make peace. They've destroyed two American armies. And so they invite a meeting to be on an island in the Detroit River, right between America and Canada. And the delegation asked the Americans if they were going to recognize the Ohio River as the border. And the Americans said, you know, we've already got some forts and some farms on the other side of the river, and it would just be too expensive to remove all this stuff. It's just impossible. We'd like to pay you for the land, and we'd give you a good price. And the Indians replied, Why don't you use that money you were going to pay us and give it to the people that you're going to have to kick off our land instead to resettle them? And they were like, uh... They left the conference, and they sent a message back to the new general in charge, a guy named Anthony Wayne, saying, We were unable to secure peace. So who is Anthony Wayne, Caleb? Well, after St. Clair's defeat... George Washington decides he's going to call in the big guns. No more of these generals that just so happened to survive the war because they were put in a situation where they could succeed. He wants somebody that he knows can make success happen. And in 1792, he gave an old friend a call. And that man's name was General Anthony Wayne, or as everyone called him behind his back, Mad Anthony. 
He was notorious for being so brave, some people said he was stupid. They would use the word crazy. There's a fine line between both. In 1779, he personally led a charge against the British at a fort called Stony Point in New York. And many people had said, you'd have to be crazy to charge a fort with nothing but foot soldiers. But Mad Anthony did it, and he won. So from then on, he was known as Mad Anthony. And Andrew kind of briefly mentioned this a little bit, but up until 1791, the U.S. had operated basically just by using militia. But Washington and the other government leaders were convinced that a strong government must have a standing professional army. And this was a huge debate at the time. There were a lot of people that were completely against any standing army. And then there were a lot of people that were saying, if we're ever going to compete with the rest of the world, we're going to need a standing army. And after Mad Anthony's victory in 1779, Washington kept Mad Anthony around to help shape the U.S. military and ultimately appointed him commander of the Legion of the United States. And it would be Mad Anthony's job to shape and train the first official U.S. Army. Mad Anthony trained his army from dawn to dusk for years. And guess what? They are almost ready. It was Washington's hope to mix wilderness tactics, like the ones the Indians used, along with cavalry, artillery, and to top it all off, the discipline that the British Redcoats had. In the spring of 1793, Wayne marched from Washington, Ohio, a.k.a. Cincinnati, towards the Northwest Arena with 1,200 elite troops, plus mounted militia dragoons and Indian scouts. As Wayne moved through the Indian country, he destroyed villages and fields like we see everybody do. And he made for a fort called Fort Recovery. And he made that his command center for the rest of 1793. In the summer of 1794, he continues his march north. But Anthony Wayne did things differently than his counterparts. One of the things he did differently was just the way that he moved in general. His strategy would be to move slowly and steady and keep disciplined, light troops out away on the sides to protect his flanks. They would be constantly patrolling to make sure that his main column would be kept safe. And as he moved, he would construct a series of forts stretching deeper and deeper into Indian homeland. That way, if anything happened, they could simply fall back a short distance and regroup and then continue their march. So Mad Anthony Wayne cautiously marched northward until he secured an area called Grand Glaze. And here he would build a very important fort called Fort Defiance. Why did he call it that? Well, Andrew, there's a legend why he called it that. Of course. And so allegedly, Wayne was having a discussion with one of his other commanders, and he stated, allegedly, I defy the English, the Indians, and all the devils of hell to take this fort. And there's no proof that he ever actually said that, but it does sound really cool. Maybe he did say it, maybe he didn't, but either way, it sounds cool. And this fort he built, Andrew, Fort Defiance, it was way overkill for the area. At the time, you know, people would build some wooden stockades and things like that. He went all out on this fort. And he did that because this was at a very strategic point. And it was also, on top of being very far into the Ohio Territory, it was getting very close to the British fort, Detroit. So he built this. That way, even if in the future the British decided to go to war with us, there would be this great fort already built in the Ohio Territory. 
But Little Turtle had been spying on Wayne's troops. Did he like what he saw? No, he did not. He could tell right away that this army was different than the noobs that had been coming in the past. And he instantly begins to fear that they will not be able to defeat this force. He returns to speak with the other war chiefs, and he suggests making terms with the Americans. Hey, we've already uh, crushed them twice. Uh, this new army looks different to me. I don't feel comfortable doing it. And he is quoted telling them that he'd been spying on Mad Anthony, and he said that he never sleeps. It's an actual quote that has been passed down that uh, Little Turtle said at this meeting. Blue Jacket and the rest of the warriors thought that Little Turtle was being kind of timid. And a lot of people are questioning him at this point. You know, we, we've been successful, and now all of a sudden you're saying that we shouldn't fight. And ultimately what happens, Little Turtle is going to kind of take a demotion here. He doesn't want to lead this force, so either he steps down or he's forced down. Blue Jacket is going to be taking over the main war party. And to complicate things, something kind of happens to one member of Little Turtle's family. His brother-in-law kind of switches sides and joins Wayne as a scout for his army. Why would he do that? We don't know, and uh, that's one of the problems with uh, history. All we can really do if we don't know the facts is speculate. But we can see from all these holes that there was obviously some sort of drama going on in this camp. You know, we see Little Turtle get the demotion. We see Little Turtle's brother-in-law switch sides. But yet at the same time, Little Turtle, is he's going to stay a war chief for the Miami. It's not like he's a turncoat. But there's, there's, some, there's some dramas going on in this battle. Wayne heard rumors of a large Indian force gathering around the British Fort Miami, which was about 60 miles north of Fort Defiance. So he would leave a few picked men at the fort and march north. The British had agreed to stay out of the conflict, but everyone knew that they were supplying and encouraging the Indians to fight the newly formed United States. And the British were supposed to leave the area, but they were holding out as long as they could, hoping that the United States government would collapse from the inside, and then the British government could swoop in and pick up right where they left off. As Wayne's men marched, Within five miles of Fort Miami, over a thousand Indian warriors waited to ambush the column. The Indian War Party felt confident knowing that they dominated the American soldiers for the past three years. And on top of that, they had assurances from the British fort behind them that they would come to their aid if the battle turned sour. And so they waited in thick brush and fallen trees. And... You see, Andrew, earlier in the year, a very rare thing happened in Ohio that doesn't happen very often. A sports team won? <laughs> don't make enemies we don't need, Andrew. Even rarer, a tornado touched down and moved through the area, and it had knocked thousands of trees down, making a horrible mess of intertwined trees, and the area became known as Fallen Timbers. As Mad Anthony's army approached, a group of Indians attacked. The initial attack shattered the advance column, but the charge was not coordinated. And we see this a lot where, uh, you know, one group attacks, but uh, all the different people don't attack together. So it kind of gives an early warning. It's just difficult when you don't have modern technology like walkie-talkies or cell phones. 
they shatter the first column, but instead of retreating scared all the way back to the fort, they simply get to the column behind them and then promptly get back in line and continue moving forward. The Americans pushed forward into the thick woods and all fired at exactly the same time a monstrous volley and then all charged with fixed bayonets. And this wasn't a rout on either side, Andrew. Both sides fought tooth and nail with skill and determination for over an hour. After an hour of non-stop fighting, the Indian warriors broke and retreated for their allies at Fort Miami. The Americans had about 33 men killed and 100 wounded. The Indians projected they lost about twice that number. And to make things worse for Blue Jackets men, as soon as the Indians broke from the woods, all of a sudden, a large group of mounted American dragoons appeared and chased them all the way to the British fort. Well, surely the British will help them out once they get there, right? Blue Jacket ran screaming towards the gate of the fort, yelling for the British to get out here and help them. The British commander, he's standing on the wall, and he gives the finger to his sergeant to close the gate and gave the order to not fire on the Americans. Blue Jacket and his men, feeling broken and betrayed, fled to the woods around the fort. Now, why didn't the British help them, Andrew? Well, the guy was probably under orders to not fire on the Americans because that's how wars start. Yeah, at the time, there is a treaty between the British and the Americans. That's not stopping the British from giving the native people's weapons to fire on the Americans, though. And it's not stopping the Americans from attacking the Indians when they already have treaties with them. But either way, there is appearances to uphold. So the British officer, even though he's willing to do everything he can, is he can't make it obvious. So he's going to shut the gate and say that he had nothing to do with this. When Anthony Wayne caught up to the British fort, he reminded the British officer that the treaty that they signed stated that they would remove themselves from the Ohio area. Yeah, like nine years ago. The British commander said, quote, Hey, I'm just doing what I'm told. That's a quote, huh? Well, not really, but that's kind of what I picture. And we're not real historians, so I think I can do that. (laughs) Wayne lacked the strength to really press the matter, so he simply gave the British a stern talking to and withdrew. The Indian warriors, Andrew, they had their morale completely shattered. I can't even imagine. You get betrayed by them during the American Revolution... And now the British leave you hanging out to dry again. You're just totally stuck between a rock and a hard place. What do you do in this situation? Well, a lot of them start to realize that they can't truly count on the British for any help. The British were happy to use them for a pawn, but the British were not going to be used as a pawn. This would leave the Native nations in a situation where they had to do some real soul-searching, Andrew. And there was going to be no easy answer because they were basically stuck in an impossible situation. Blue Jacket signs a basic treaty to make peace. But then in 1795, they want to get together and hold a big peace conference to hash out all the details and see where they can come to some kind of common ground. So Blue Jacket is really active in persuading all the other tribes to attend this conference at Greenville. And there's some pretty hard terms. The treaty guarantees that Americans can access the region pretty much completely. 
but it allows the Indians to retain some land in northwest Ohio. To the native peoples, they still thought that this was something, because at least our people could survive to fight for another day. Little Turtle was traveling to Greenville with his wife and gave a speech before signing the treaty. But the very next day, his wife died in the camp. What happens next after Little Turtle's wife dies, Andrew, goes to show, at least from a ceremonial standpoint, the Americans were willing to show some respect to Little Turtle and his family. Because the American soldiers put on a full military funeral for his wife, and American soldiers are actually going to be the pallbearers for Little Turtle's wife at the burial ceremony. The American band plays music and offers a full three-gun salute over the grave, and this kind of helps Blue Jacket make the decision to make peace with the American General Anthony Wayne. Back in Canada, Alexander McKee, the same guy that escaped with Simon Gurdy from Fort Pitt back in the American Revolution, he writes a letter to Blue Jacket saying, You have deranged by your imprudent conduct all our plans for protecting the Indians. You must now be viewed as an enemy for your people. Can you imagine the gall of that guy? saying, you've betrayed your own people, when the British are actually the ones that betrayed them all through this. How dare you guys make peace and inconvenience your British fathers? So whatever happened to um, these guys, Caleb? What happened to Little Turtle after this? Well, Little Turtle, he actually, a few years later, is actually invited with other Native American chiefs to meet with George Washington. And while he's there, he and Washington have a great talk together, and Washington actually gives him a ceremonial officer's sword to show that he's acknowledging him as a great warrior and a great leader of men. Little Turtle would live all the way until 1812, Andrew. And he was buried at his home. And there's kind of an interesting story that I'll just throw out there. Years later... This guy is putting an addition on his house, and he's digging up the back lawn, and he digs up this grave. It appears to be an Indian warrior of some kind, but he's buried with a sword that says from George Washington on it. No kidding. The historians come in, and they almost immediately identify, you know, they go back in the records, and they find out, oh, who did George Washington give a sword to? And they found... Little Turtle's grave with the sword, so you can actually see the sword. Why didn't they give it to the tribe that Little Turtle belonged to? See, that was that was one thing that kind of bothered me. Or even, I feel like, I mean, it'd be cool to see the sword George Washington gave him, but at the same time, when they reburied his remains, shouldn't it have gone back with him? It's like, I wouldn't want somebody digging up my body and taking my stuff out and putting it in a museum. But anyway, uh, you can see pictures of the sword that was given to Little Turtle. You can just Google it, too. There's pictures of it online. And that basically, in one one-hour episode, sums up the Northwest Indian War. We probably could have done a full eight-episode series on this. But because Andrew and I are trying to get through Iroquoian history, and we would like to uh, resolve that within the next 20 years... We're trying to really focus on the Iroquois. But this was just too big of a, of a gap in history to leave out, and it happened so close to Iroquois homeland. And it's really going to set up where Andrew and I are going with our next episode because we are going to be talking about the reconciliation and the treaties be between the American government and the Iroquois in the 1790s in New York. And there's a particular man that's going to be at the epicenter of all of this. And that man's name was Red Jacket. So thank you so much for joining us. Please remember to like us on Facebook. 
Don't forget to check out our website, longhousepodcast.com. And for our Wild Sweet Potato Clan members, for those of you that don't know what the Wild Sweet Potato Clan is, it is a group of people. It's a fan club. I mean, it is what it is. (laughs) If you like the show and you feel like that uh, you like Andrew and I and you would like to be uh, kind of a family member to us, you could always join our clan, the Wild Sweet Potato Clan. And to do that, all you have to do is go on iTunes and write us a positive review, and we will take your username and add you to the wall of clan members. But on top of that, Andrew, I feel like our clan members just aren't getting enough benefits being in this clan. And you know, it's kind of funny because you listen to other podcasts, and we're not mocking other podcasts. They do a great job and a great service. But other podcasts tend to sometimes ask you for stuff. We're actually giving you guys stuff for free, so... Andrew and I are having some uh, merchandise made. In particular, we're having uh, coffee mugs that say Wild Sweet Potato Clan member and have our logo. And we want to send you one for free. We are not going to ask for you to pay for shipping or anything. We may not be able to send them all out right away. I'm still waiting for them to come in uh, the mail. But we need a few things from you if you would like one. One, if you haven't already, leave us a review on iTunes. Then shoot us an email... And the address is longhousepodcast at gmail.com. And on this email, you can keep it short and sweet. Leave us your name, the username that you use to leave the review, and your address. And Andrew and I will take that and add it to our list, and we will get you out your official Wild Sweet Potato Clan coffee cup. And then you can be kind enough to take a picture of yourself drinking some coffee and post it on our website and, you know, just show the world that you're a clan member. I also have one more very cool announcement. This past weekend, I was a guest on a Canadian podcast called One Dish, One Mike. And it's two gentlemen that are both indigenous people that live in Canada. So that was really cool. And they interviewed me all about the podcast. And we talked about other stuff, too. So if you guys could check out their show, One Dish, One Mike, and look for the most recent episode, and yours truly will be on it. I wasn't on it, so you'll just have to listen to Andrew. So you'll probably have to suck it up. I know that'll be tough, not hearing me, but Andrew does an okay job too. Thank you, everyone. Bye, everybody.